You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Stephen Ellis from NUI Galway. His paper was entitled Reforming Sacred Space, the Collegiate Church of St. Nicholas, Galway and the Reformation. I think uh, this is a topic that will get uh, a lot more airing next year at the 500th anniversary of the 1517 um, Reformation Day with Martin Luther, but um, I don't think it's a topic that has been much looked at in an Irish context, and so this is a kind of case study, you might say, about sacred space in one of the less successful um, spheres of the Reformation, the Church of Ireland. By 1560, uh, a markedly different bibliocentric presentation of Christianity had nominally replaced the more visual focus and traditional ceremonies of the pre-Reformation church in Ireland. The collegiate church, St Nicholas, uh, built around 1320, served an isolated English outpost on Ireland's western seaboard. The townsmen were allegedly a modest and civil people surrounded by illiterate savages raised in woods and mountains. From 1484, the church was governed by a warden and eight vicars appointed by the mayor and corporation. And the church's privileges were then confirmed by King Edward VI as supreme head of the church in 1551. During the Reformation, the sense of civic pride in the church was also registered by much rebuilding to enlarge the church, involving the widening of the aisles and extending the south transept. And the south aisle was enlarged between 1508 and uh, 1535. Uh, The north aisle uh, was enlarged in two stages um, by 1538 as far as the Chapel of the Blessed Sacrament uh, and then uh, th- that was built between 1538 and 1561 the rest by 1583 Mayor Nicholas Lynch Fitzstephen also extended the south transept uh, in 1561 So, by 1583, the main structural changes to the church as it is today had been completed. Concurrently with the Reformation's radical liturgical changes, although probably unrelated. The new prayer book services involved a radical reordering of the scenic apparatus of divine worship. Out went mass, said or sung in Latin by the priest apart in the chancel, separated by a rood screen from the nave where the congregation stood or knelt as passive observers. In its place came services in English, common prayer, 
with priest and people worshipping together, interspersed with scriptural readings and concluding with a homily or sermon. The prayer book rubrics provided that common prayer uh, shall be used in the accustomed place of the church, chapel or chancel, probably in the nave in Galway, uh, with a reading desk for the minister to read the service. Weekday services for small congregations could also be held in one of the side chapels. Two special provisions of the settlement also related to prayer book services in Galway. First, the Elizabethan injunctions permitted common prayers in a a modest and distinct song uh, as if read without singing, for which Thomas Tallis had composed New Settings Reformation style. The Tudor Reformation had retained the cathedrals uh, with choral foundations, pipe organs and a large staff of clergy to sing the new services. And this practice included collegiate churches like Galway where Vicus Choral also survived. Mayor Lynch had provided the church with an organ and a great bell in 1561. A belfry tower followed in 1590 with a chime of new, new bells. So, for sung services, the chancel was probably used by the choir and by the 1580s with poor boys supported as choristers. By contrast, parish churches heard very little music at all after the Reformation, beyond the congregationally sung metrical psalms. Second, the legislation provided that where the minister did not know English... He might say common prayer in the Latin tongue as prescribed in the Liber Precum Publicarum. This clause greatly extended the Liber's use in Ireland from college chapels or collegiate churches in England. Um, But an Irish translation of the prayer book would have undermined the government's anglicising strategy. Formally, the Liber was a Latin translation of the English prayer book. But the prayer book was in turn really just an English translation of the Latin pre-Reformation Ceremus. So this clause in practice permitted the more general use of this Latin prayer book. In both 1551 and 1615, over half of the Galway's vicars were mere Irish. If ignorant of English, they could say their office in Latin in the chapels in Irish-speaking districts, in Moycullen or Oran Moor, outside the town. So, for a while after 1560, the Vicar's Choral continued to sing the traditional Latin offices, the, scan- the soundscape thus reinforcing the impression of continuity with Catholicism. From 1560 onwards, though, Uh, Holy Communion became a much more occasional aspect of the prayer book services, mainly uh, on major feast days. The reformers complained that many attending church would not receive communion. During the communion, the Lord's table was to stand in so good sort within the chancel as whereby the minister may be more conveniently heard, with the priest standing at the north side of the table. At other times, the holy table was set in the place where the altar stood, usually against the east wall of the chancel, chancels remaining as they have done 
uh, in times past. Otherwise, chancels were now little used, so frequently neglected. But in the collegiate church, it was probably still used by the vicar's choral. In other respects, the church's adaptation for prayer book worship focused on the removal or downgrading of traditional furnishings. Their most prominent feature was the rude loft and screen before the chancel. Don't have one for Galway for obvious reasons. Uh, In Galway, uh, even the screen was removed, uh, but when is unknown. In Dublin, within weeks of the legislation in 1560, orders went out to new paint the walls of the cathedral and instead of pictures and popish fancies, to place passages or texts of scripture on the walls, notably the Ten Commandments and the only picture not to attract official disapproval, a set of the royal arms of the Queen. These must also have figured in Galway uh, with the Ten Commandments displayed on boards on the chancel east wall. When the rude loft and figures disappeared, saints' effigies and other graven images were also removed, as likely to confuse the ignorant and lead people into idolatry. In Galway, some abused images and ornaments had already been removed by Lord Deputy Grey in 1538. And fearing further spoliation, the church wardens made an agreement in 1546 with James Lynch, merchant of Galway, whereby he received the jewels of the church, its great cross of silver, four silver candlesticks, two bracket, two freestanding, a pix for the sacrament, and four silver chalices, in pledge for £60 sterling outlaid by him for repairs to the church, plus a lectern of brass, candlesticks, and wax. Some of these jewels would anyway have been confiscated during the Edwardian Reformation, but two silver pixers retained initially probably for use as communion cups, were purloined sometime after 1576 by Bishop John Lynch of Elphin when he was warden. As for any remaining images, these should all have gone in 1560 in line with the Queen's injunctions, but clearly they didn't. On their first circuit through Connacht in late 1569, Lord President Fitton and the Council found the clergy and people generally very cold in religion and too much inclined to superstition. In Galway, they visited sundry and many of their idols and images in the church and committed them to the fire, reforming it also in other necessary articles according to the Queen's injunctions. Despite this, A few instances of decorative carvings attached to walls, pillars and tombs survived this perch. The angel high up in the archway between the south aisle and south transept uh, is now the only angel to have survived unscathed. But others escaped the Tudor purges only to be decapitated in the Cromwellian army's 1652 iconoclasm. A surviving wall tomb includes a carving, also now defaced, of a crowned figure of Christ 
with upraised hands and open robe showing his five wounds. And up high in the north transept is a corbel um, with a Tudor carving, um, apparently of a biblical Joshua holding two bunches of grapes. Some of these carvings have traces of dark paint and when first erected would have been elaborately painted. In place of ornaments and images, the church was to purchase both a poor box and also a copy of the whole Bible of largest volume in English set up in some convenient place, perhaps on the brass lectern acquired in 1546. These days, the one uh, item of late Tudor church furnishing still regularly used is the beautifully carved baptismal font at the back of the south aisle. The poor box was an official reminder that charity should be directed to needy people made in God's image in place of offerings to graven images. It should also receive the money previously collected from fraternities and guilds attached to the church's now redundant side chapels, which also fell under disapproval during the Tudor reform. The collegiate church once had no less than 13 of these chapels, but only two uh, enjoyed a, uh, an attenuated existence into modern times. The Chapel of Christ holds the church's oldest tomb, known as the Crusader tomb. And the Chapel of the Blessed Sacrament, uh, built between 1538 and 1561, attests to the popularity of traditional pre-Reformation belief in the real presence, just as the Eucharistic doctrine, which its name implies, fell under disapproval. Assuming it once housed the reserve sacrament, its use as originally intended must have been short-lived. Also soon redundant was the early Tudor holy water stoop, now in the North Isle. It's a rare and costly freestanding type, uh, which presumably explains its survival. Given the expense of providing a replacement, if, if, as was widely expected, Catholicism should be restored, even bulky monuments of superstition were illicitly dismantled and buried rather than destroyed. So, after 1560, despite changes in liturgy, ornaments uh, and church furnishings, the sights and sounds of worship in the collegiate church were probably closer to traditional Catholicism than Elizabethan Anglicanism, at least until 1568 when Mass in Galway was formally prohibited. Most of the existing clergy stayed on in 1560, but the transition to prayer book worship meant that they were in effect mostly downgraded to reading ministers who could not preach but only read the service. When the warden, Patrick Blake, the warden specified in King Edward's 1551 charter, failed to appear before the Queen's commissioners, he was arrested by the mayor and duly appeared before them in November 1563. Presumably, he then took the oath of supremacy. In April 1567, when Lord Deputy Sidney first visited Galway, he went unto the church, and in the churchyard, the bishop... 
this is Christopher Bodkin, Archbishop of Tuam, received him in his pontificals, accompanied with diverse priests and clerks in copes singing. Strictly, this accorded with the prayer book uh, ornaments rubric, which specified such ornaments in the church as were in use in 1548, traditional Catholic vestments. Sydney then entered the Church of Our Lady just outside the town and there remained until tedium was sung in Latin and after prayers he went to his lodgings. All this was hardly as envisaged by the Elizabethan settlement but it broadly accorded with the law which permitted the singing of what were in effect the traditional Latin offices, matins with Te Deum Laudamus, in a supposedly reformed setting. Archbishop Bodkin, although a known conservative, was a native of Galway, had taken the oath of supremacy in 1560 and later supported the education of clerical students at Oxford. Sidney was much more impressed when he attended the collegiate church the following Sunday. He heard a very godly sermon preached by a priest of Ireland which was sometime a friar. He made his preface in Latin and then declared in English a very godly lesson to the comfort of a great number that heard. The sermon ended, the Lord Deputy called for the said preacher in thanking him for his good sermon. Again, Latin uh, featured in the worship. <clears throat> the preacher was perhaps Roland Lynch, later Bishop of Kilmacduel, uh, who was brought up by Francis Martin, a leading Protestant from one of the town's oldest families. Meanwhile, the college's possessions were gradually alienated by the warden and vicars to their friends and kin, so that the college's endowment barely provided an adequate income. But once the college was in more reliable hands, Queen Elizabeth leased various dissolved abbeys, rectories and tithes to the college in 1578 to augment its income so that the warden and vicars might better continue together maintaining a godly and learned preacher. The college's income was then about <coughs> £80 a year but £30 a year was the least needed to maintain a graduate preaching minister. The college increasingly resorted to law to recover income withheld from rents, vicarages and, ironically, uh, offerings and dirges traditionally paid for commemorative masses. About 1596, they petitioned the mayor and corporation for recovery of 23 separate amounts of such income. Yet, when Sidney next visited the Collegiate Church in 1576, he was again impressed by a sermon preached in Irish, English and Latin by a countryman of their own called Lynch when two rebels submitted. This was John Lynch, the new warden, educated at Oxford under Mary and sometime a friar of Greenwich, he became a reformed man, a good divine and preacher after re re reading Calvin's Institutes. Galway was then the paradise of Ireland in number and zeal of professors of the gospel. Elizabeth later appointed Lynch Bishop of Elphin as also three more Galway-born bishops, so that church leadership in the West remained with native-born clerics. 
graduate preaching ministers were then rare among Church of Ireland clergy, but regular sermons attracted full attendances at services. When Lord Deputy Fitton resided in Galway, the mayor, his brethren, and many of the town, both men and women, more orderly repaired to church than in any town in Ireland. And after Fitton's departure, the people continued their said going to church by the means of one Walton, their preaching minister. With Sunday services and sermon lasting two hours, no doubt congregational seating and a pulpit were provided. The injunction stipulated a comely and honest pulpit. In 1585, an inquiry found no evidence that the corporation abstained from church to hear God's divine service or frequented any other service prohibited by God and Her Majesty's laws. But the warden and vicar were enjoined to use only God's divine service daily according to Her Majesty's injunctions, ministering sacraments and sacramentals accordingly. In 1586, Lord President Bingham uh, found the townsmen mostly very well affected in religion already and more given to embrace the, the doctrine of the gospel than elsewhere. But by 1591, Sir Turlock O'Brien was bemoaning the great declination of the town of Galway, which, through the magistrate's negligence, had exceedingly fallen away from the truth of the gospel. Now, very few of the men, and not of the chiefest, frequented the services. Civic solidarity was breaking down. The church no longer had a preaching minister. If Galway had a good preacher, the Protestant merchant Francis Martin believed in 1586, being so well bent already, it would come in short time to very good perfection, both in town and country. He suggested Roland Lynch, then student of divinity at Cambridge, um, but Lynch was appointed Bishop of Kilmacduagh. Again, in 1595, when Lord Deputy Russell visited Galway, sermons by his chaplain and Bishop Lynch prompted the mayor to request a preacher for the town. William Daniel and Abel Walsh then served until 1602, but without preaching ministers, the Reformation lost ground. By 1611, as Lord Deputy St John uh, reported, throughout Connacht, there is indeed no ministry at all except Archbishop Daniel and his predecessor, Archbishop Donnell. No church is standing, and the livings left so small as scarcely out of the chief towns any other benefice can be found worth £10 a year. This had been the position for some time. In 1585-86, only the bishoprics of Tuam and Elphin were worth the £30 a year minimum seen as necessary to support a graduate preaching minister. In Galway itself, the regal visitation of 1615 found the corporation firmly reticent, and the collegiate church had just two of its complement of nine clergy. The one elected warden just before the visitor's arrival was of dubious reputation, the other a pluralist absentee. In theory, four more clergy had the title of vicar, but they were also vicar's choral of Tuam Cathedral, no doubt because their livings were worth so little. 
Previous wardens had alienated properties, reducing the college's income to £40 a year, so that the townspeople lived without divine service and almost without God on earth. Across Tudor England, the authorities had promoted the love and due reverence of God's true religion and extirpated the sights and sounds of idolatry and superstition. But in Galway, the remodelling of sacred space had never been fully implemented. An attenuated form of the traditional Latin liturgy had for long competed with the English prayer book, with sermons and homilies only intermittently provided. So when traditional Catholic worship was so frequently, so freely available alongside this uh, local compromise, it's scarcely any wonder that most people preferred the real deal. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.